episode number four of the Canadian Prepper Podcast, Deer Hunting. My name is Eric. I'm the host of the show. I'm based in southern Ontario. I'm a hunter, target shooter, ham radio operator, VE3 EPN, and computer geek. I got into preparedness when I was working frontline emergency services and witnessed an over-reliance on emergency services during major events such as ice storms, power outages, etc. I started a small preparedness company to help get people prepared and able to look after themselves for at least 72, 72 hours, if not longer. My name is Ian. I'm co-host of the show. I live on Vancouver Island on a small hobby farm. I'm an outdoor enthusiast, hunter, reloader, and my farm is designated handyman. I've had lifelong interest in preparedness and gladly learning new skills on a regular basis. My professional background has allowed me to see pretty much every province and territory in Canada. It has also taught me to prepare for various unexpected situations daily. So I've got some great content for you in this episode. We're going to start off with some news articles relating to hunting and the outdoors. Next, Ian and myself will be letting you know how we've improved our preparedness since our last episode, and we have some listener feedback to cover off. Then we're going to be getting into the main topic of the episode, pre-deer hunting. So since this episode is going to be focused on hunting, I thought an article about hunting would make sense to talk about. So I've got an article from October the 27th, 2018. It's in relation to the Ministry of Natural Resources and their laying of 132 charges in a 10-day period at the start of moose and deer season. So I'll just read a little excerpt here from it. Uh, during a 10-day period from October 13th to October 22nd, conservation officers checked 4,768 hunters from Ontario and the United States and laid 132 charges and issued 329 warnings. Some of the charges and warnings that were issued including, included failing to wear a proper helmet on an ATV, having an open liquor in a vehicle, having a loaded firearm in a vehicle, not wearing proper hunting orange, night hunting, shooting from the road, and trespassing for the purpose of hunting. So I just want to talk about a couple of uh, issues in regards to what they've laid the charges for. The fact that there are more warnings versus charges, I see that as a good thing. Education always makes a big impact versus laying a charge. Uh, safety as well, it's key. Alcohol and hunting, they just don't mix. And not wearing orange, it makes common sense. In, uh, in Ontario, it's actually a requirement when you're out hunting, you need to be wearing hunter orange uh, for visibility purposes. Well, that's actually a good thing too. I mean, you know, deer for the most part are colorblind uh, as far as like, you know, huge differences in hues. They'll sense, uh, you know, dark and light, but, uh, you know, it doesn't really affect your, your success with hunting as far as using orange goes. We're not required for it here in BC, but uh, still not a bad idea depending on how densely uh, populated the bush is with hunters. Yeah, I find it interesting that uh, you're not required to wear orange out there. Um, it's just something that uh, has always been a requirement here that uh, anytime I've got hunting, I just knew I had to wear it. So it was, uh, it's kind of interesting to hear you don't have to wear it out there in BC. No, it's actually almost like a, a Duck Dynasty special as far as how many guys go running around with full camera all the time. Um, <laughs> a lot of times, too, is, you know, it's a shorter range of operation out here, too, because uh, depending on the thickness of the bush, sometimes you won't see anything until it's within 50 yards of you by the same token. Sometimes in certain province, uh, areas of the province, you'll see guys that are shooting across the valley. So, I mean, uh, that's where orange certainly would help. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not uncommon even here during hunting season. You'll see people out uh, walking the trails in the woods and, you know, just taking their dog for a walk and they'll still be wearing the, the blaze orange just because they know it's hunting season. And a lot of the uh, the areas here, um, in my area at least, you know, are multi, multi-use. So they allow hunting in the area, but you're also allowed to take your dog for a walk. You're allowed to, you know, take the bike out and, and go for a ride on the trails. So 
there's just all kinds of different activities happening. So it's, it's, it just seems to be kind of second nature for people around uh, this time of the year to, to be throwing the hunting orange on. Even if they're not partaking in hunting, they're still uh, aware that the hunters are out there and they, they want to be visible. Because I don't think anyone really wants to end up getting shot, obviously. And uh, it'd, be, it'd be bad on both ends. Was there a case of that about three or four years ago in Southern Ontario where it was an ex-hockey player or somebody that had shot somebody out of a tree? Yeah, there's something going on there that basically the the guy, he um, he just saw something moving and didn't really think much of it. And the guy was all cameled up in the tree stand as a bow hunter. As oh, jeez. And uh, yeah, he just took a pot shot at it and knocked him out of the tree. Well, that's, that's always... Uh... One of the key things of hunting, right, is target acquisition. If you, if you don't know what you're shooting at, don't pull the trigger, right? You got to be uh, 100% sure of your target and beyond. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, hunting accidents always happen. You hear about them every year. It usually relates to people just not uh, not using common sense or not uh, not paying attention to what they're doing or just moving too quickly. And the next thing you know, accidents happen, which is unfortunate. But uh, especially with the whole alcohol and, and hunting thing, I know kind of it goes hand in hand where, you know, the guys are out at the hunt camp and they want to, you know, are taking boozing up, but at the same time, if, uh, if the beer cans are out, the rifle should be away, right? Well, it does change the, uh, I guess, the judgment level or the, the lack of good judgment level. And, uh, you know, of course, if you're going to go out hunting like that and you're going to get involved with stuff like that, of course, you want to make sure you have a good first aid kit with you because accidents do happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a good uh, good first aid kit is uh, one of those things that uh, it's nice to have and hope you never need it. But uh, if you do need it, you'll be glad you have it, right? And you need it now, so... Well, exactly. You don't have the option of, uh-oh, I should go buy one now because my buddy's bleeding out. No, you got to have it right there, uh, ready to rock and roll if you need it, right? Yeah, do you guys uh, generally bring a, a good kit with you as well? Yeah, we usually have a good uh, a good kit uh, on the go. We've got uh, some Israeli bandages with it, uh, some tourniquets, um, a bunch of gauze, and, and some other little bandages as well so for the little cuts. But we got everything from a little cut right up to a gunshot wound just uh, just in case. And Thankfully, we've never had to use it, but it's uh, it's nice to know that we've got it just in case. And uh, you know, we take take some time ahead of time before we go out and, and do the first hunt. Make sure that the guys know where the kit is. They know how to use it. They know uh, what is there, and uh, and just how to access it and how to properly use it. So we do a quick uh, quick run through on that just as a refresher because some of the guys don't see it until uh, until we go out hunting. They see it once a year, right? So quick refresher can't hurt, and then uh, that way the guys know. And uh, how about you when you go out hunting, Ian? Oh, everything from an ouch pouch to pressure dressings and so on. We even have a uh, tourniquet on board. Uh, just you know, simply the fact is, you know, the ouch pouch can come in handy just with a uh, simple, you know, cutting your finger on a on a skinning knife or whatever. And uh, you don't yep. want to you don't want to ruin the meat with uh, with your own blood for sure. No, exactly. And, uh, of course, then there's you know anything more serious happens, whether it just be slipping down a rock, you know, uh, uh, even a sand splint or anything else, uh, certainly comes in handy. So uh, this year we're bringing uh, everything in the truck, so we'll certainly have a good first aid on board. Yeah, we usually leave uh, at least the the big kit on the on a truck or a vehicle of some sort that's easily accessible, and then uh, some of the guys will carry just a, a little uh, personal kit with them as well with some some basics. But uh, the the big kit with all the the good stuff in it is is in a, a mobile vehicle ready to go that's uh, not blocked in by anybody else. Uh, usually, it's either in a truck or if one of the guys has an ATV with them. We'll put it in the ATV versus the truck because the ATV can get to a, a lot of places that uh, some of the pickups can't. And uh, how about you, Ian? What, uh, do you do any kind of mobile setup or do you uh, just carry stuff with you? Well, for the most part, it's just in the truck, but uh, we don't generally go too far from the uh, the vehicles. Like we'll go hunting uh, down a uh, either a game trail or uh, an overgrown logging road. Um, so I do have a smaller in my, my bag, but for the most part, uh, the big one would stay in the truck. 
Uh, fair enough. Yeah, we're on. Uh, we hunt about a hundred acres of land, and we'll uh, we'll spread out. So we'll put guys all over the place, and then we'll have one uh, one dogger set up that just goes, and we'll figure out the route that he's going to walk that day, and then uh, set up around. And then the idea is he's going to push the deer towards us, right? But we're we've got a pretty good distance between uh, each member. There's probably about five or six of us to go. So that's why we uh, we like to kind of keep one uh, one mobile kit and then a little little kit on each each guy if we can. Well, you're pretty lucky. I know it was uh, when I lived down there. It was certainly tough to find a spot that was uh, you know, conducive to deer hunting that had you know yet the the right to be there as well as uh, you know or public access, I suppose, uh, especially in southern Ontario. Oh yeah, it, uh, we're we're definitely lucky, and that's uh, that's definitely not lost on us either. We're just uh, we we hunt just a little bit south of uh, North Bay area, and uh, the the area we go, it's. Like I said, it's 100 acres, so it's it's nice, and it's uh, right in the middle of it. There's a, a little bit of a lake as well, so it's uh, it's landlocked, the lake. So one owner on the one side has given us permission to hunt the land, and then the, the land on the, the camp that uh, we go to, obviously we have permission to hunt the land there, and so it, uh, it turns into 100 acres. It works out quite well. That's excellent. And I think you've got a news article as well. Yeah, actually I do. I've got one from the CBC, and uh, basically it uh, takes place up in uh, northern BC in a place called uh, Bella Coola. And basically where a homeowner in central BC has been captured on video shooting a large uh, grizzly bear in his front yard. And this is, and he said this that he made uh, in trying to protect himself and his family, but one of his strong threats in the days since. And so basically uh, the headline says, she was coming at me with her mouth open, and a BC man shoots grizzly in front of the yard. Um, did you happen to watch the video at all? I haven't actually watched the video yet, no. There's actually a couple epic fails on his part. I mean, uh, safety around wildlife is always key. Um, you know, even when you're camping and hunting, you still got to worry about bears coming in your campsite. Uh, this guy took it one step further. He had a mama bear and two cubs that were grizzlies living in his front yard. And uh, he never scared them off until, I guess, he was worried about his kids, finally. And, uh, you know, we can talk about the who has the right of the space, uh, him versus the bears and everything else. But... Uh, he certainly left them there a little too long. So what happened was he ended up going, uh, just dropping down into the yard after firing a warning shot at her. And then, uh, surprise, surprise, she charged him. Oh, no way. And uh, but to make matters worse, and it's not like he had a first aid kit ready to go for his own part or anything else, but his plan was to shoot her in the foot. And so if you had a grizzly okay. bear charging, he, has a, he had a full, full, uh, full-grown grizzly mama bear coming at him with cubs behind her, which you know what they get a little bit ringing with at the best of times with that. Oh, absolutely they do. And he uh, he shot her in the foot, which stopped her for about a second and a half, and then she proceeded to continue chasing him, and you know how fast they can move as well. So did he purposely shoot her in the foot, or was that just uh, yeah, poor was, aim on his part? No, that was his plan, he said, and he basically uh, went out of his way to shoot her in the foot just to scare her off, with, with birdshot, no less. And uh, so, yeah, no wonder he's getting some outcry on that one, because, I mean... If you're going to shoot a bear in self-defense, I mean, do it properly. Oh, absolutely. But, if, uh, but the better thing to do, he could have fired off about 10 to 15 bear bangers in his yard, you know, over the course of a few days to keep her away from the yard. Yep, uh, that'd be an option. And certainly, just don't go down at the yard. He could have just stayed on his porch if that was the case. I mean, if he's really worried about it. Uh, but instead, the video of him getting chased, I was actually surprised she didn't catch him. Yikes. Yeah, that's... And, uh... Yeah, you do, you do see her chasing him around the house and the wife kind of uh, running to this house to see where he is. He made it inside his house, surprisingly. And a uh, bit of a prepper fail on many, many tangents there. Yeah, I don't... I, I'm still stuck on the whole bird shot versus grizzly thing. I, I, I don't see how he was thinking that was going to work out to begin with. Well, it's pretty safe to say he charged outside without a real plan in, in place. And he didn't certainly have a backup plan because, I mean, I, 
ask my wife to put down the camera and help out. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bear chasing me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want the inevitable bear defense thread to start up on CDN or anything about this, but I mean, like, uh, yeah, I think it'd be more comfortable going out there with a 308 or buckshot versus birdshot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or, or a slug or something. But, uh, not buckshot or birdshot. No. <laughs> I think once you use the bear struggling, I mean, was probably thinking more 50 BMG, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, doesn't sound like a good time at all. And yeah, you gotta you gotta keep that in mind when you're when you're out and about, whether it's at your house if you if you got bears around, or like you said, if you're out camping or something, you definitely want to keep uh, keep an eye out for that and, and be aware that they're there and um, you know they're hungry. So if they're they're coming for food, they're they're gonna want to get some food, right? But really, your your best thing is uh, if you see them, make a lot of noise and scare them off right away. Don't let them hang out because if uh, if they take off, then the the threat's gone, right? But if uh, if you just kind of let them hang out and they get comfortable in the area, then the longer they're there, the more comfortable they get. It, it turns into a not great situation because, you know, honestly, like nobody wants to be shooting a bear or killing it if you don't have to, right? And you get to the point, you let it just hang out at your house and now it's a threat to your family. That uh, That's not good either. So, yeah, I think first place would be a good plan. Yeah, it's like a way too long for sure. Oh, absolutely. Anyways, that's what all I had for news articles this week. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll move into how we prepared this week then. So right. uh, for myself, for this week, uh, we worked on uh, getting the garage all set up. So I had a, an old rickety uh, workbench in there that uh, was starting to, to show its age. It's been in there for many years, and it was starting to, to fall apart. So we tore the whole, tore the whole uh, garage apart and uh, built a whole new workbench, put up some proper uh, supports for it so it's not uh, you know waving in the wind and, and looking to collapse on me. And uh, put up a whole bunch of pegboard as well, so I can uh, get all my tools organized and get everything set up, so it's uh, accessible and not, uh, you know, the, the whole "where's this, where's that, I can't find it." Although I'm still going to do that, even though it's on the pegboard now. But the, the thought is there, anyways. So I've got a good solid workspace now, a good uh, good spot that I can do some work and work on things that uh, need fixing or tuning up, and uh, I'm not worried about it actually falling apart as I'm working on things. Excellent, and. Um... Do it take very long to you for you to finish that up? Yeah, that uh, that's been pretty much it. Besides that, I've been on the road a lot for work the, uh, since the last episode, so I really haven't been able to to get much set up or, or cleaned up around the house or do do anything further beyond that. Uh, just last weekend, I had some downtime, so we got working on that. But besides that, I haven't really been home. No, I hear I'm able to start a big stretch of work myself. So I uh, I had a couple extra weeks. Uh, I guess it's been almost two weeks since our last episode. And, yeah, uh, about that. So basically, I was able to uh, finish some slitting with the uh, last of the wood we had for the uh, summertime. So I did a bit of slitting and stacking the wood during the uh, break in the weather, because of course, we're already into rainy season here. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, of course, that also gets me into uh, panic mode for the uh, finishing off the chicken coops. I had to put some siding on one of the walls. Um, obviously, taking off tomorrow hunting, so I reloaded some 308 for myself. Um, one of the reasons I reload for sure is not so much... Uh, uh, the thrill of the actual reloading event, it's, it's actually quite boring, but cost savings is certainly key. I mean, I, I think of reloading these hunting rounds for about 75 cents versus two, $2 per round is what you'd pay in the store for the same thing. Oh, that's awesome. I want to get into reloading eventually. And now that I've got a good workbench, I might be able to. Well, exactly. And, you know, the nice thing is instead of flinching when you're shooting based on the recoil, you don't have to you know, worry about flinching during the cost of the round either. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's just amazing how much of a cost savings it could be on premium ammo like that. Oh, absolutely! I've got a couple of buddies that reload, and they always tell me about how much uh, how much per or how much per round they're they're paying or what they're out of pocket for it. And then I look at my uh, my factory rounds, and I'm like, oh, okay, one day I got to figure this out. And then 
they'll give me a couple of rounds from from their reloads and it's so much nicer to shoot because you, you know what's coming you know how it's going to react and there's there's not that big recoil well it's consistency too that's a key accuracy is consistency in the ammo even the cartridge length uh, the charge behind it it's uh you know helps you out as best you can you know one of the system as best you can for hunting and making an ethical uh, ethical harvest right oh absolutely and uh, as far as anything else go, I, uh, I did make some nine millimeter on the reloader as well, just because uh, the wife and I got a new uh, blinking toy from Bullseye Sports. Uh, oh yeah, you showed me that uh, the new toy there. It looks nice. Yeah, so I got one of the uh, first thirty into Canada. They were PC carbine, and uh, so I took it out of the range. It's ludicrously reliable, and it was uh, it was able to bang the irons uh, with the iron safety. It was banging the uh, iron gongs there at hundred yards, no problem. Oh man. For the wife and the kids to enjoy because it's uh, pretty much zero recoil on it as well. Oh, awesome! I would definitely say lots of value for the money on that one. Oh, it's good. It's uh, and it's good to get the the wife and kids out too. To, to just put some holes in paper and and get them used to to the firearms, right? Well, absolutely. I think everybody likes the reactive targets when you when you go off the steel gongs like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a little bit of positive reinforcement is uh, is always good with the steel the steel targets for sure. Well, let me know if I'm boring you here, but I got some more stuff. So I. Uh... No, go for it. You've, you've had a little bit more time than I have since, uh, like I said, I've been away most of the time, so go for it. Yeah, sounds good. So we processed the last uh, 14 of my meat birds for the season. Um, we basically ended up having a, a plethora of males this year. I don't know what was with the uh, the hatch rates, but normally you get about 50-50 on males versus females. And we ended up uh, with probably about 80-20 uh, males to females this year, so we had a, a lot of them. Oh, wow. And so we sold four of them before we even got home, which was nice. It helps pay off some of the, uh, the feed. Yep. Uh, we managed to can some stock, uh, freeze some of the meat once we parted out the birds just for uh, space savings in the freezer. And, uh, you know, it's always nice to get that uh, sense of accomplishment and pride in knowing what you went, in, what went into the chickens as far as food goes, you know, um, and compare that to your average uh, factory bird. It's, you know, it's like, I think the chickens had a pretty good run of things, just one bad day in general. Yeah, and it's nice too that uh, you know where they came from, right? You know what they've been fed, you know, uh, you know how they were raised, you know, uh, how they were processed, you know everything about them from start to finish. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, actually, my wife did spend a better part of the day partying out. I think, I think she did 10 in a day for sure. Uh, while I was busy vacuum packing them, you know, trying to get them into the vacuum sealer in there nice and tight so you can um, actually, you know, make the most use of your space there. And uh, turns out uh, I tried one of those hand grinding meat grinders. And oh, yeah. it, <laughs> I bought it, I think, at Cabela's or something. And it turns out uh, the chicken thighs and the meat grinder does not work because it just gums up the, uh, the blade there in about 10 seconds. Oh, so, that's no good. So a hot, hot tip for anybody out there that wants to make their own ground meat is just use a food processor instead. A little quicker? <laughs> a lot quicker. And, and, and no uh, no binding up? Absolutely not. And uh, yeah, a little less frustration that way. So other than that, uh, let's see here. Um, interestingly enough out here, as long as you uh, commercially process your chickens here and you keep it below a certain sales level, you can certainly sell stuff to your neighbors and stuff. Uh, you know, and still make it safe for human consumption. Um, if you don't use a commercial processor, you have to sell this, uh, you know, not for human consumption kind of meat, like dog food or, or the like. Oh, right. Well, that's good. Uh, you, can send, you can sell some to your neighbors. That's good. Well, at least offsets the cost. It's kind of like selling eggs as well, right? Yeah. So, um, other than that, the, uh, the girls, uh, the two daughters were able to show some chickens in the local fair and uh, did fairly well for themselves. Oh, um, good. That's certainly going to help us for... Uh, hatching egg sales next year, which, you know, when you get a best in show ribbon behind your, uh, your chickens, it's pretty easy to ask for a higher price per dozen. Oh, oh absolutely. If you can show that, uh, that you got some quality birds, then yeah, absolutely. 
And uh, I think, uh, well, earlier this, this season, I sold uh, some egg hatching eggs off uh, to a guy on CGN and actually I managed to get 60 bucks or 50 bucks a dozen of those hatching eggs. And, you know, it's pretty much the going rate. And it's just nice because, like I said, that's much more profitable than selling eating eggs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's a decent price. I, I wouldn't know what uh, what they were worth. So that's uh, so 50 bucks an egg. Uh, 50 bucks a dozen. A dozen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So we go full. Uh, we could go full uh, kind of chicken geek on you here, but I think we'll probably do that in a later episode and talk about that. In yeah, depth. no, I uh, I definitely get a lot of people asking me when I'm doing the uh, like the shows where I go out with uh, Rapid Survival. People get talking about uh, chickens and and you know hatching chickens and getting eggs and stuff, and I never know how to answer it, but I know it's uh, I know it's a popular topic and something that uh, that we're interested in maybe getting into down the road here too, because I've got the, the acre of land here at the house, I may as well use it. So it's. Uh, learning topic i'm interested in so i'm sure a lot of listeners are as well so we'll we'll definitely do an episode on it and uh you can tell us all about it and how to do it and how to get into it because uh, it's certainly a popular topic and certainly is it's catchy we've got to manage to get a couple of our friends on board in the, in the local area as well just with a couple of chickens and it's almost like a gateway drug for preparedness i think oh absolutely yeah you start with chickens and then you just explode from there absolutely awesome. so i guess it's time for the main topic i guess yeah i guess we'll get into the uh, the main topic of the episode being uh, pre-deer hunting so it's uh, it's november and along with the colder weather and snow comes deer hunting season so i've been uh, i've been hunting deer now for the past what probably about seven or eight years now roughly so it's been uh, it's been fun uh, as i mentioned earlier i'm in uh, northern ontario and uh, just a little bit south of north bay uh, it's a great time to spend with friends and family uh, I've successfully harvested two deer myself during the time, uh, and there's nothing better than knowing what you're able to, you know, you're able to put food on the table using skills learned. So I spent a lot of time with the guys I hunt with, and they've been hunting at this specific camp for for generations. So they're they're able to teach me how to track the deer, how to look for them, the different signs, and, and how to successfully harvest them. So I was I was pretty happy after a couple of years of just following along and watching and, and learning how they did things. Um, to be able to actually harvest my own so it was uh it was it was interesting to see how to do it uh another bonus is one of the guys at our camp is actually a, a butcher by trade so he's able to cut the deer up quite nicely and, and he's willing to show us how to do it and, and how to do it properly so that's uh, that's a nice bonus and a, a great way to learn as well so all the guys are are you know willing to share what they know they're willing to share how to do things and uh, they're all quite supportive of the the new guys coming out when i was new coming out um, you know, they'll take you under the wing and show you exactly how to do it and how to do it right. So that was that was nice. And then I've got them more into doing the, the communication things. At first, they would just say, you know, go here, go there, go there. And they didn't have any kind of radios or any kind of communication. So I've kind of brought the, the techie part into into the hunt camp. And and so now they're all uh, using the little bail fangs there. And we're, we're talking with each other and, and coordinating a little bit more, which is nice. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's a steep learning curve at first. I mean, it's, it's still a continuous learning curve after that. It, it never really stops, I think. And you know, like you said, even if you're getting the older guys to get on the radio aspect, it's it's still something new that they've done, haven't done before. So, oh, exactly, and we we saw quite uh, quite the change there too, where we we kind of had an idea as to you know we before they would say you know your dogger's going to go out and you'll you'll see him in about a half hour coming from over this way sort of, and then he'd come out from an opposite way. But now with the radios, we kind of know where he is, who he's coming to. He's able to kind of check in as he gets close to a certain person that he knows he's in the area. So it, it just opens up the communication a little bit more is nice um, just because we know kind of where people are and, and uh, how we're working and, and what's going on. Well, you having the the, uh, the butcher local is nice too because, I mean, that's uh, less wastage of meat and, uh, you know, better uh, meat preservation right off the bat so you don't have any losses. I mean, because basically, you know, it's, it's not exactly a cost-effective way to do it. 
uh, to gather meat, but it certainly is a gets a little more self satisfaction involved too. Oh, absolutely! Just just being able to know how uh, to go right from you know seeing the deer to harvesting it to being able to cut it up and and turn it into something that you can put on your table is just awesome. And, and knowing that you can do that without having to rely on too many other people like you're obviously going to have to rely on a few more people to, to drag it out and get it hung up and, and get it cut like to do it on your own it's, it's not impossible but it's a lot of work so it's, it's nice to have a few people to help but just knowing that you can do it and you know how to do it is just comforting in a way if you if you have to do it in some kind of an emergency situation this this setup obviously isn't an emergency situation we can go down the road and, and get a burger at the local burger stop if we have to but um, knowing that we know how to do it is just it's it's, uh, it's nice well, I think the first thing to learn too is that once you actually fire the bullet, that's when the work actually starts. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, as for me, my hunting history, I mean, uh, upfront, I got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm more about just feeling the freezer than the uh, thrill of the hunt aspect. I mean, I don't really you know, get a big thrill out of chasing them down and, and stalking, looking for game sign and everything else. But I've, uh, I guess from an early age, I was always just taught, you know, it's just another way to offset food costs. It's another way to, like, you know, uh, alternative sources and everything else. And so, I guess uh, when I was a small kid in Alberta, it's, you know, the first thing we went after was grouse because that was the easiest thing to find. So uh, basically refer to them, you know, colloquially as uh, ditch chickens. I'm sure you guys have heard that before. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, ditch, ditch chickens for sure. So up in, even through high school and everything else, it was nothing to go after school and pick up a, you know, ditch chicken or two and, and bring it home. And, you know, I actually was finally lucky enough to uh, pick up a, a couple of grouse in the local area here and let my wife and the kids try them because they actually hadn't tried them until last year, right? you know, two years ago, I guess it was. Yeah. And um, it was actually, it was well received for sure. It's certainly a nice shape, nice taste. It's different, but it's it's certainly nice. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's different for sure. But, uh, you know, different is always good, right? Yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, back in the mid 90s, I tried my hand at caribou hunting in northern Saskatchewan when I was living up there. And uh, that was way, way in northern Saskatchewan, not uh, your typical prairie farmland, but way up uh, towards Northwest Territories border. And um, it certainly required a sense of humor based on the temperature up that at the time. Oh, fair uh, enough, yeah. But, uh, you know, as far as big game hunting goes, it didn't require a whole lot of skill because basically the uh, caribou notoriously um, dense, I guess, for lack of a better term. I mean, you can basically, if you have a line of them walking across the lake in front of you, you could literally shoot the guy in the back of the line, nobody even notices. And... Oh. Uh, so it wasn't much for like if you had a group of 20 of you to get, you know, five, six, seven of them before they even started running, which is really strange. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, I did uh, manage to get some moose up there as well. And uh, unfortunately, that's my favorite meat and there's none available on the island here where I am. Oh, yeah, I know. I've, uh, I've had moose once or twice, but uh, I, uh, I plan on maybe going uh, turkey hunting at some point. I got my license for it. I just uh, haven't found anybody else in the area that likes to go. So at some point I might go turkey hunting, but um, for me it's it's been just deer and that's been pretty much it. But I'll, uh, I'll expand out eventually at some point and, and put the license to use. Well, I was going to say anybody that's in the northern part of Canada, for sure, if you're in the northwest territories or northern Saskatchewan or anything else, if you can find yourself some ptarmigan, I mean, that's certainly a, uh, an easy entry into hunting and I tell you, it's actually surprisingly tasty. If you don't mind the burgundy red breast meat, it's uh, it's a little bit different that way. But uh, you know, when I was living up there, and I was basically getting paid almost zero. I uh, it was a great way to offset food costs for sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah, it's a great way. And uh, Skype, I was just actually had this discussion with a friend of mine the other day. You know, like you get the uh, the modern day labels you can attach to hunting wild meat it certainly offsets a lot of people that are on the green side of things that don't like the hunting idea, but. When you can, uh, when you're dealing with something that's a little squeamish with the idea, you can certainly throw terms like organic, free range, antibiotic free, ethically harvested, sustainably managed, cage free, and oh, uh, yes. 
before you know it, they're like, oh, wait a minute. This, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially nowadays in New York, you know, everybody's worried about what the contents are in. Well, you know, basically around here, they're, they're reading only so many things before, you know, it's harvest time and that's it. There's, there's not a whole lot going in that isn't natural, so. Oh, exactly. And you start throwing those words around and it, it takes you from the, the big evil hunter to the, oh, okay, I, I know those words organic and free range and antibiotic free. Yeah, okay, I'm okay with this all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. So last year, actually, in uh, I the first few years in BC, just uh, there's a logistics issue, it was a time off issue. And with younger kids, uh, I didn't get to go out hunting. But finally, uh, I tried last two years ago, I got skunked for, uh, for deer. Then last year, I tried a different area and uh, went with a, another friend of mine in the local area here. And we managed to uh, get a buck day one of hunting season. Like literally this first day of hunting season, 15 minutes in and I had one. 15 minutes in. Nice. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Actually, it almost looked like one of those, uh, those hunting statues standing sideways, you know, pointing at his, his, just behind his shoulder blade going, yeah, right here. Oh, so and... you have to double look and make sure you're actually <laughs> seeing what you think you're seeing. Yeah. And then, uh, but unfortunately my one preparedness lesson from that adventure was, uh, I didn't have another tag handy. So let's uh, learn about that one. We had, uh, we're allowed actually three deer tags in, uh, in BC here in this area. And, uh, per person? Yeah, per year. And then, uh, oh. I mean, the deer, I, uh, I mentioned on another podcast yesterday, but the deer here are basically the size of like oversized Rottweilers. So they're not large deer. Um, oh, okay. And on certain places, there's just no natural predators. So, uh, and a lot of people aren't exactly pro hunting. So, I mean, there's not a lot of hunters in certain areas. So, uh, yeah, in certain parts of BC, you're allowed three tags. Wow. So yeah, we, uh, we all just entered the draw and then uh, cross our fingers if uh, if we get a tag or not. And this year we lucked out. Most of the most of the guys got uh, got an antlerless tag, which is good. But we've had years past where uh, we don't get anything. So all you can all you can shoot at that point is a buck. But uh, this year I think we've ended up with about three or four antlerless tags. So we're we're looking good for this year. But uh, with uh, with that we'll probably end up getting skunked just because we're uh, we're lined up pretty good this year. But Hopefully not. We'll uh, we'll put a good effort in again and, and hopefully get something. Well, I got the uh, this is the basically the one week where it's fairly wide open for us. We're allowed to, no more than two of one sex. So if we get one buck, we can at least get two does as well. Oh wow! Well, yeah, that's a totally different system than what we have here. Yeah, well, of course, you go to the interior of BC or you know uh, northern BC, it's completely different again. So I mean, it just depends on what zone you're in here. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess it depends on the the population and what's happening, right? Well, yeah, of course, Lower Mainland is a completely different scenario, like uh, the Vancouver area. But, you know, the same thing, you go up to uh, Fort St. John, it's going to be a completely different uh, item as well. And plus, the deer are quite, quite large, so you're probably only going to get one tag anyway. Oh, okay. They uh, they split us up here into to different wildlife management units, and then they disperse the tags depending on uh, their studies for the year and how many male and female or buck and does they, uh, they know are in the area. And then they determine how many antlerless tags will give out. And some years they give out very few, some years they give out lots. It, it's all just kind of a, a random random sort of setup. And you just kind of cross your fingers and hope you get a get a, uh, an antlerless tag for the year. But if you don't, at least you're able to, to shoot a buck. But well, that's this a, year we've locked out. So that's strictly a numbers thing for you guys too. You got such a oh, huge yeah. population density south of uh, basically once you get south of North Bay and you know south of the French River. I guess it's it turns into a lot of hunters per square mile. So oh, that there's that too. Yeah, there's uh, yeah definitely the, the numbers game of the number of hunters that are out there would definitely uh, take into into account how they they put out the licenses and the tags. But he said we always just cross our fingers and, and worst case if uh, none of us get an antlerless tag, we still got uh, our license to go out and. Uh, you know, if we don't go out, well, the, the beer is cold in the cooler, so uh, we just put the rifles away and crack the beers. That sounds like a fun day. So how oh, yeah. do you uh, start your uh, hunting prep anyway? 
Yeah, so I guess we're going to take some time to talk about our, uh, our pre-deer hunting setup and how we're going to get ready and, and hopefully harvest the deer. So for myself, uh, I've got a, a 308 rifle uh, that I've uh, cleaned up and uh, oiled up. I, I keep it maintained throughout the year. I take it out to the range and, and put some holes in paper with it as well uh, just to make sure that it, uh, it sees some range time because it would be horrible to just have it sit in the, the safe uh, the entire year and only bring it out for, for deer hunting. But it's, uh, it's a Savage uh, 10TR. So that's my, uh, my main rifle that I, I bring out. Uh, the other one I've got is my uh, Remington 770. It's a 30 odd six. So if I'm doing a lot of uh, running through the, the the woods for the day, or if I'm dogging, that's usually the one I take because it's a lot lighter than the than the Savage. So those are my my two main ones, and I'll uh, I'll get them all oiled up and cleaned up, and, and get the scope all checked out, and and take them out to the range for a day, and, and just make sure that they're uh, they're good and zeroed, and, and everything's in, in good working order on them, and and they're putting holes in the paper where I expect the holes to be. Uh, that way I'm not, you know, lining up on a deer, pulling the trigger and going, uh-oh, didn't drop the deer. Where'd that round go? Because uh, I'm accountable for that round, right? I don't want to go on off into somebody or somewhere that I'm not expecting it to go. Uh, I'll check out, you know, my boots and my jacket, uh, make sure that my orange is good and bright and, uh, and is visible. Because as we touched on earlier in the show, we are required here in Ontario to, to wear hunter orange. Um, you know, make sure that my pants are, are good to go. Because I got a pair of uh, overpants that I put on that are, that are waterproof, so I'm not... Uh, getting soaked out there because we'll sit out for hours and make sure they're not tearing up and uh, this year actually I was doing my pre-checks and found that uh, I knew it was coming too the uh, my boots were starting to, to get a little bit of cracking and, and wearing on the soles so I get to go out and, and get myself a new pair of boots here before we go and that way I you know there's nothing worse than cold feet when you're out hunting or, or doing anything really so I'll go out and get a new pair and make sure uh, I'm good to go there and uh, we've got cameras set up around the camp so the guys uh I'm about three hours from well, maybe two and a half, depending on who's driving. But uh, so we'll go with three hours. About three hours from the from the camp, and so the guys that actually live right there that, that own the camp that can get to it within ten minutes. Keep a keep an eye on the cameras and uh, and see what's moving in the area. We've uh, they've seen uh, a buck that's that's been by. They say it's about an eight point buck that's gone by a couple of the cameras, and uh, they put the cameras in the areas where we usually put guys uh, waiting for the doggers to come out. So, uh, you know, there's a buck that's hanging around. There's a couple of does that we've seen as well. And, and the, um, the movement patterns they've been using uh, a little bit different from, from years past. So we kind of know where they're, where they're walking, where they're moving and, uh, and how they're kind of, how they're kind of moving around the, the acres that we, we hunt. So. Hmm. Actually, I was going to ask you there, uh, full disclosure, I got it, made the same choice myself, but why did you choose 308 as a, as a hunting ground? Well, it was after I talked to uh, a couple of friends that hunted and the guys at the camp uh, who were hunting as well. When I was looking to get into uh, get into the hunting, actually the first one that I uh, that I purchased was a thirty odd six. They had said that that's kind of one that you can use for all kinds of different things, right? And they said it'll be uh, a good one to, to start out with. So I started with the thirty odd six, and then uh, actually the the three hundred eight uh, just came uh, came out. Uh, the Savage ten TR there was uh, was available and available for a good price so i wanted to add to the safe so i ended up uh, just purchasing that one as well and i just added it to the lineup so it was it was more of a right time right uh, right place to make the purchase and, and just expand the uh the gun safe for no other reason than that and then i took it out and uh, the first year I, I i bought it i took it out and i actually harvested a deer with it so it was uh it's turned into my lucky gun because it uh no, I just brought it out for the first time around, and I ended up uh, getting my first deer with it. So that's why I keep bringing it because it's uh, that's actually the the rifle I've used for uh, for the two deer that I've been able to harvest. That sounds good. You guys have a minimum caliber restriction there as well. Uh, it depends on the um, the, the 
the, the hunting unit that you're in or the wildlife management unit that you're in as far as uh, what you can can and cannot use. So uh, if you are heading out hunting, you'll want to check with uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources and see what you can and can't use depending on what, uh, what area you're hunting in. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, like we actually do not have a uh, caliber restriction here, but for these smaller deer, but uh, I still use 308 just so I want to make sure I drop them like a bad habit. I don't want to have them suffer or anything else. I want to make sure it's an ethical kill. So. Oh, absolutely. That's the key is, is making sure that uh, that doesn't suffer any more than it has to. So an ethical kill is definitely in the mind of, of every hunter, right? That's uh, that's what you're going for is is making sure that uh, you, t- you take it down and, and it uh, it's done quickly rather than having to suffer. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, um, for myself, actually, I, I did the same thing went with a 308. Um, you know, it's basically the newer version of the 30-06. Um, you know, down the States, you see 30-06 all the time, maybe the occasional 308. In Canada, when I was growing up, it was always 303, and then now we've kind of moved over to 308 as well. I think it's nice just the fact that, you know, instead of buying something like a 416 Rigby or some oddball caliber like that, if you, if you do, for some reason, find yourself short or whatever, you can always run to Canadian Tire and grab a box if need be on the fly. Oh, absolutely, yep. You know, it's, it's certainly, uh, I think 308 is pretty much good for anything in North America, pretty much. And, uh, you know, like I said, you can find it anywhere and it's dual purpose round. You can use it for long distance uh, competition shooting. You can pretty much use it for anything you want. Yeah, it's, it's quite the, the uh, versatile round. Uh, you, can, yeah, you can use it for deer, you can use it for moose. Uh, like you said, competition shooting too, if you need to. Yeah, of course, it's being usurped now by different calibers down the road, like 6, 6.5 and stuff. But yeah, I think it's going to be a, certainly a, a go-to caliber for hunting for quite a while. Oh, absolutely it is, yeah. Well, for myself, I guess I, uh, I cited in my 308 as well. Um, went to the range, just made sure it was uh, maintaining zeros so after sitting in the closet, basically, for a better part of a year. <laughs> and uh, But I did actually, like last year, I used a Savage uh, 10 model. Um, it was a 10 FCPSR, which uh, I discovered as I was carrying it down some of these old logging roads. It was ludicrously heavy. So by the time it came in to uh, actually make the shot, I was you know laboring a little too much for my liking. And um, anyway, so uh, yeah, so... Unfortunately, I went over to uh, the Teacup brand, and they got a, a T3X, which is a super lightweight version. And I figure uh, the amount of times I'll actually be shooting it, there's no sense carrying around a big heavy one to reduce recoil and just uh, deal with it. Yeah, it's kind of the same as I do with my my Savage 10TR. If I'm, uh, like I said, if I'm camping out somewhere or I'm sitting in a in a stand or, or on a stump somewhere, I'll take it. But if I'm dogging and walking around, then my uh, my 30 odd six comes because there is uh, quite a weight difference and. Uh, yeah, hugging, lugging around that uh, that Savage, it can get heavy pretty quick. I learned that the hard way once when I was dogging with it. And by the time I was done walking for about an hour, it was uh, it was quite the weight on the shoulder. No, absolutely. And uh, same thing for uh, the grouse. Hopefully, if I see some where we're going, it's uh, I just brought a little bical. It's a uh, twenty gauge, and it's uh, it's I think I paid one hundred and thirty five dollars for it used on CGN. Oh, that's and, a good cost. Well, it's cost-effective, it's reliable, and the fact is that if it gets wet and a little bit of spot rust in the meantime while I'm out there, because it's going to be pouring rain, I'm sure, um, I'm not worried about it versus bringing like a, you know, a high-end Weatherby or a Browning 20-gauge or something like that and, and you know, worrying about you know, keeping it babied and everything else. It's like a, it's a nice bush gun for sure. Yeah, that's that's the other thing when you're you're trudging through the, the woods there and you got your five, six, $700 rifle with you. You know, sometimes a, a twig will snap back on you or some snow will fall down and yeah, you definitely don't want that getting into your your rifle. That's for sure. Even if it's a hundred and thirty five dollar rifle, you don't want the snow plugging you up. But uh, you're not as worried about it if uh, if a little bit of snow gets on it, and you can clean it up when you get back. You can you know still go on and carry on your 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 hunting and not have to run right back to the camp right away to to clean up your rifle. Absolutely, especially if you take care of a deer in the meantime, and you know rain's still pouring down. So oh, absolutely, yeah. 
So as far as other arrangements for myself, I uh, actually arranged with another fellow prepper in the area here to do a uh, two-vehicle caravan. So he's got more of a camper van style, and uh, it's also his, his bug-out vehicle, of course. <laughs> oh, of course. you got to have a good bug-out vehicle. Yeah, so we've got that lined up as well as my truck. So we're going to use my truck for the actual scouting, hunting, you know, finding the trails and everything else, and um, using his BOV as the, uh, the actual base camp. And uh, let's say there's a BC forestry site that's, you know, free for use uh, there as well. You know, provides a freaking table outhouse and, you know, I've got a rain canopy and stuff all set up. Oh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good combo between the two of us. Oh, awesome. So that's just uh, an area you can go and use uh, at no cost uh, or do you have to pay to, to camp there? Yeah, I guess that's, that's another big cultural difference between Southern Ontario and here is that um, basically because of all of the forestry that's gone on here over the years, they've always put aside certain spots where they allow um, free camping, for lack of a better term. So basically do some roughed in areas. Um, there is like an outhouse, picnic table, pretty much that's it. Uh, not even often you'll see a, a water pump. And what will happen is uh, it's just first come, first serve. And uh, for the most part, even during the summertime, uh, during the midweek, they'll be empty. And during the weekends, yeah, they'll fill up a little bit. But you'd be surprised how many campsites are actually out there that you know barely anybody uses. Well, that's awesome that they they give you a little outhouse and a and a setup there. That's that's well, actually yeah. kind of nice. I do remember when I was living in Southern Ontario, you know, having to go out to like you know go to a place like Owenda there, right on the uh, Georgian Bay, and you'd have to book six months in advance for a spot on a long weekend or something, or maybe even a year in advance. Like, oh completely... yeah, the the provincial parks here poke up uh, at least a year in advance. It's uh, it's crazy. We go to a couple of them here and. Yeah, you got to book six months to a year in advance, or you just don't get a spot. Like they have a couple that they leave open for, you know, like last minute bookers. But by the time you're looking to even book one of those, are already filled. The only thing that uh, that we found, like when we go fishing in the in the summertime, there's some crown land that we'll go and use, and that's free to go to as well. But uh, they don't set it up with uh, outhouses or, or anything like that. You're you're kind of on your own for for that. But um, it, and it's first come first serve as well. So if uh, if there comes a time that we show up, or we go every year, the, the certain weekend in September to this one spot, and if uh, somebody else is already there and we show up, well, we're out of luck and we gotta we gotta move on. We had uh, a couple of years ago, we were out there and we had a couple guys show up. We were about two days into into our our camp out for uh, the fishing camp, and a couple of guys just showed up out of the blue and. I'm like, well, yeah, you can come join us. We don't mind. There's lots of room. Throw your tents up. So they came and joined us. But um, if uh, if we'd already been there and we didn't want them to, then they'd just have to move along and find somewhere else to, to camp out. So, But uh, it's kind of nice out your way in BC there if they, uh, they're they going to set up uh, some outhouses and, and kind of make them a little bit more user-friendly. That's that's nice. Well, there's just so many small little lakes that, you know, there's no houses on and everything else. That it's just nice to actually have, like, access to them, you know, with a vehicle instead of having to go hiking all the time. So, I mean, they're not everywhere, but they're certainly uh, very prevalent around the area. Well, that's awesome. And that's uh, another topic we can get into in another, uh, another podcast when it comes time to uh, get into the fishing season. Uh, I definitely like to get out and fish, so we'll, we'll do an episode on that as well. So, yeah, sounds good. So uh, just like I was mentioning before, I bought extra tags this time, so I don't leave myself uh, shorthanded because there's, no, uh, there's no hunting tags or uh, where we're going. And then uh, based on last year's events there, and then I uh, bought a larger cooler, and uh, that was another learning curve for me because, of course, in Alberta, uh, northern Saskatchewan, anywhere else I've hunted, uh, you know, come September 1st, it's actually getting started to get cool, whereas here it was actually quite warm that day. So I'm uh, going to have a larger cooler with me with, uh, with ice as well to make sure everything can cool down the meat as fast as possible. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. The uh, yak is for here. Same thing. When we're out hunting, it's usually we usually go the second week in November. And by then, you know, during the day, it's it's pretty cool. And at night, it's it's definitely cold enough to keep uh, keep the deer hanging outside without any worry. But 
yeah, if you, yeah, you got to plan that too. If you don't have uh, the, the weather's not cooperating with you or it's warm in your area, you definitely need to have a way to, to keep the meat cool or else it's going to spoil and then it's, uh, it's gone to waste, which is definitely something that you don't want to have happen. Well, exactly. And here it is. It does stay warmer or longer, obviously, or at least uh, too warm for meat, we'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so, other than that, um, I was going to say there for my uh, other preparations, I mean, basically, we just picked a better spot again this year. Um, Make sure we found an island with you know no, no natural predators and not too many hunters make the effort to get there and so uh, just trying to make more of a time efficient trip than anything else oh yeah to, to get out to an area where there's not many yeah. uh, many hunters and not many uh, not much uh, human activity would definitely make the, uh, the hunting a little bit different right so yeah uh, if the the deer aren't used to the humans being around then it uh, you got to kind of adapt to that as well absolutely so i suppose we should move on more to the point of today's topic i guess which is uh you know uh, good times and bad times for hunting. So uh, all this chat we've been doing about, you know, normal ops for hunting. I mean, it's all well and good during good times, but uh, let's just say if there's any sort of disruption to the supply system, it's hard to do this when the gas supplies are low or there's civil unrest happening for sure. Oh, absolutely. Like I had said, my uh, my location where we go hunting is, is at least a good two and a half hour, if not three hour drive. So if, uh, if we're in a situation where gas supplies are low, and uh, I'm not making that two and a half hour drive to go to go up to this camp to go hunting the to, to drive back with some meat because it's just it's not going to happen right you're not going to be able to get the fuel or if you do have the fuel to make the trip there you're not going to have the fuel to make the trip back so it's uh, it's definitely something you got to keep in mind for your your preparedness plan is if uh, if things do go south and uh, you know food supplies are gone fuel supplies aren't available. Um, do you have an area close by that you can get to on foot that you can uh, possibly hunt or, or do you have a, have a way of, of getting some food onto your table in your local area and not having to make these big trips to uh, to known locations where you, you may go you know, recreationally hunting? Well, the problem is too is if you're going to go on foot to hunt, I mean, you're going to be competing for dwindling resources with a bunch of other guys with the same idea. And uh, again, that, that's where the population density problem comes in as well. I mean, I, oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think up to this point, I mean, basically in society, we've been trading gasoline for food, you know, on various, whether it be farming or anything else. I mean, you know, whether it be the combine with the wheat or us with, you know, trucks and going out to, to deer country and everything else. Uh, we can, same can be said when you're trolling for your fish or anything else. I mean, if you don't have gasoline, 90% of the stuff doesn't happen. Oh yeah, yeah. If you think about it, it without gas, you're, the the food to the grocery store is not getting there, right? You're not getting to the store. You're not getting to where it is that you're. If you're going hunting, you're not getting there because you don't have gas to get there unless you're one of the lucky people that are able to walk to a location where you hunt. Uh, yeah, gas is a huge part of of our of our lifestyle. Really, if you if you don't have it, there's a lot of things that disappear very quickly. Well, same thing. I mean, here to get my uh, hunting grounds, you have to take two ferries, and uh, you know, a few hours uh, away from the house as well. It's uh, it's really hard to do in social unrest or a breakdown in social services of any sort. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, those ferries don't run on uh, on paddles, right? You you got to put gas in the engines to make them go. So it's uh, you're not getting there without that. It'd take a, a lot of paddling, I would imagine, to get to uh, to get to where you're going on a on a ferry, right? Well, yeah, of course, that brings us to the myth of the bug out to the woods. Uh, bug out to the woods in case of anything wrong going happen, you know, happening. To, because I mean, I don't know about you, but my truck gets pretty filled up when I'm going out on a normal camping trip. So, oh, absolutely, uh, mine as well. <laughs> so, if you imagine a, a permanent move to the bush, it's uh, it'd be a little bit more daunting of a task. Than I think most people realize. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's kind of everybody in the the prepper world or anybody that I've talked to always kind of has this idea that oh yeah, well if you know things go south, I'm just going to take off into the woods and I'll be fine. Well, you got to kind of 
think about that and uh, and figure out how much equipment you're going to have to bring, how you're going to get it there. If you've got a, a location that's safe to be in already and you've got four walls and a roof, why not plan to stay there for a while? If you know if things are really going bad in your area and you, you got to take off into the woods, yeah, it, it could happen, but you got to you know reality's got to kick in you got to realize the the amount of equipment that you got to bring to actually make it uh, a habitable area and, and what you're going to need to do it with um, can it be done with with just a tarp and some sticks well yeah for a short period of time but you're going to you're going to end up battling the elements and it's going to be it's going to be tricky to do after some time but um, not to say it can't be done but if you're you're pulling your whole family you know you got uh, kids with you it's it's going to be tricky so so the whole idea of just yeah I'll just take off into the woods everything will be uh, honky do dory you got to Kind of, kind of think about that a little bit more than just uh, yeah, I'll just go and figure it out as uh, as time goes. Well, absolutely. And even you know, no matter where your home base is, whatever you choose to do. I mean, personally, we'd be staying here unless there's no other choice. But um, if you do go out hunting on foot or whatever have you, that you know, you're leaving your house undefended from somebody that might not have not have the idea to go to hunting. So you know, you want to call the looters or burglars, or whatever. If yeah, there's that as well. You don't want to leave your what supplies you do have, uh, you know, without supervision. So I mean. Uh, unless you have some sort of a mutual assistance group or like some somebody to watch your back while you're gone hunting, it's, it's pretty much impossible to even leave to go hunting. Yeah, that's that's a part of the trick is if, uh, if you're leaving to go hunting and, and things have gone south, you're, you're not the only one that's uh, going to be looking for, for food or, or looking for uh, a place to stay. And if uh, if your house is all set up and, and people are aware that, uh, hey, look, this, this guy over here has got, uh, got a house, he seems to be uh, doing well, maybe we'll, uh, we'll go take his stuff. Yeah, the home security is huge. You gotta, you know, you gotta have a plan in place and, and figure out how to how to fortify your home to to make sure because not everybody's gonna have your best intentions at heart, right? They're uh, they're looking out for themselves, and and as they should be, they shouldn't necessarily be taking your stuff, but um, they're gonna be looking out for themselves as well. So uh, having uh, having a plan to secure your home is is definitely important. And uh, you know, I'm not talking about putting up huge walls and, and barbed wire and and all kinds of crazy stuff like that, but but just knowing how to secure your, your doors and your windows and, and make sure that um, those are secured so so easy access doesn't happen. And then if you do have to leave your location to go get food or, or to go do whatever it is you need to do if, if things have gone south, then you're able to do that and know that your house is, is good and secure because you know, if, if someone's looking to get into to your home or into your location to, to take things, they're going to take the easiest route, right? So if, you, if your house is fortified and it's, it's tricky to get into, they might go down the street to, to somewhere else they figure is easier to get into because they don't want to be in there long. They don't want to be causing um, attention to be drawn to them either. So they have to make a lot of noise to to get into into your home or, or smash things to get in. They're going to know that people are listening and they don't know where you got to keep in mind too. They don't know exactly where you are. So you could be kilometers away foraging for food or, or hunting or you could be you know a couple couple hundred meters away and if you hear something happening, all of a sudden you're going to come and defend your place. So there's all those different um psychological things happening too so you got to just make sure that your place is good and secure and, and have a plan for for fortifying windows and doors and and uh, noise discipline as well if uh, if you're out hunting and you do happen to harvest something well, everybody around you is going to hear that so you're going to want to uh you know think about that as well and, and maybe come up with some ways to to do things maybe a little bit quieter with uh, maybe a bow or a crossbow or something um, not as noisy won't draw as much attention um and then that way you, you can still uh, harvest an animal, bring it back, and and you don't have the whole uh, you know the whole neighborhood knowing that uh, that you may have been successful in a hunt. Um, well, you don't want them to. You're basically ringing the dinner bell for everybody else around if you if you uh, clack off a rifle and people know that you've harvested something. So now they they've got that awkward situation. Do you want to share, 
do you want to oh. have uh, sharing imposed upon you? <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, sharing imposed upon you. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that you, you need to keep in mind because uh, clacking that round off could, uh, you know, could, and people can start heading towards where the shot is and... You know, they, they may be well-intentioned and they're, they're coming to help or they may be ill-intentioned and they know that you've got food and, um, well, they want it too. Well, there's an old rule of thumb we used to use. So it basically, it actually rings true. If You know, if you hear a shot, you know that a shot's been taken. But if you hear two shots, you know where it's been taken. So, I mean, people are on the alert to listen to where the shot's coming from for the second shot. So make every shot count in that case. Oh, absolutely. And then uh, we get back into the topic of gas too. If, uh, if there's a shortage of gas... You know, you're you're going to want to figure out how you're going to store it, uh, and you know really figure out how you're going to use it. Because if uh, if there's a shortage and you have gas available to you, uh, for example, I, I keep a good storage of gas here just so I've got it in case I need uh, need some for if if things go south. Um, you're going to want to make sure that it's stored appropriately and that uh, you're using it. But at the same time, if you're using it, that that engine you're running is going to make noise. And if, uh, if people hear you've got a running engine, that could draw attention to you as well. Well, if you've got to keep the uh, refrigerator and the freezer going with the generator, that's, yeah, it's going to cause noise discipline issues as well. But same thing, if you do harvest a deer and you don't have a way to refrigerate it or preserve it, then what do you do with the, you know, after the first meal, what do you do with that deer, right? Oh, that's and, the trick as well. Yeah, you got to keep the meat uh, from spoiling. So it's, it's a fine balancing act as far as uh, noise generation and, uh, and kind of keeping things quiet as well. Well, that's where the, you know, down further episodes, I suppose we could talk about canning, preservation of meat and everything from salting to dehydrating to everything else. I mean, there's certainly tons of ways to do it without, uh, well, not so much without power, but alternative ways to do it so there's shelf stable. Oh, absolutely. I think that'll be a great topic to get into. And uh, then we can talk about how to to better store it and, and have it available. Or even, you know, when, when things haven't gone south, you'll, you'll be able to, to can some meat and, and keep things uh, in a cold cellar or in your, your pantry and just be ready to go just uh, just in case, um, you know, you're, you're faced with something as simple as a power outage for, for a couple of days or or if it's something a little bit more uh, more trickier that you got to get through. Well, and actually it's kind of funny because we've talked about this this uh, topic for a minute there. I actually did some spitballing over a couple of days and I was trying to think of ways you could, you know, basically harvest animals or harvest food of any sort, uh, you know, kind of on the quiet or on the cheap or at least uh, without the use of too much gas. So I came up with a few ideas here. I came up with uh, live traps. Um, for example, one of my local uh, friends here, he actually had a problem with raccoons in his yard. He put up the live trap and he managed to get five raccoons within a week. Now, I'm, oh, not wow. saying, I'm not saying, you know, we, we break what the raccoons do or anything else, but I mean, heck, you know, it's, if you're starving or raccoons, it's well, you know what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, they're around. Well, and you know, they say what live traps is you can still legally practice with the live trap and there's no crime committed if you release it right afterwards, you know, whether, whatever you're catching, you know, so if you happen to catch a fur bearing animal, it's not a big deal to just release it and everything else, but it's just something you can see what works and see what doesn't. But the only thing I'd recommend with that though, with raccoons is if you trap a raccoon, and you let it go, it's never going in that trap again. No, yeah, they, they learn quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're quite crafty. But um, yes. the other thing I was thinking was, was the uh, the snares idea. I mean, that's the skill set. That's uh, certainly not a uh, an easy-to-do thing like a live trap. That's something you have to actually work on. Oh, absolutely, um, but a, a great skill to have if, uh, if you're able to practice it. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, I was thinking one other thing, you know, for energy efficiency, instead of walking 10 miles to get a deer and then, you know, having to carry it back and stuff, I'd... I'd probably be more interested in, you know, I'm not saying baiting, well, in what times are good, but I'm just saying, you know, if you had an opportunistic shot when you're in the local area of your farm, well, obviously you take that and just wait for that to happen naturally. 
versus uh you know going and trying to track something down for sure well absolutely Uh, as far as the uh, West Coast specific stuff, we uh, of course we have crab pots and shrimp pots you could just throw on the edge of a rowboat without having to need any gas. And uh, any sort of food scraps you have, you just throw on the bottom of those, and that would attract them quite fast. Um, and we actually overlook a, a bay here that it's actually illegal to harvest shellfish nine months of the year. I mean, you can get a year-long license, but uh, basically, except for when the weather's too warm, we have invasive clams that basically you're allowed seventy-five a day legally right now. Wow. Yeah, right. Right now, even uh, oh. like let alone times are bad. So they're an invasive species called vanilla clams. So, I mean, you can basically like if you don't mind seafood. There's no shortage. Huh. And uh, I guess in Ontario, there's always the uh, the freshwater mussels and the crayfish. Yep, there's that. Uh, yeah, the, the, there's no shortages of uh, streams and ponds and lakes. You can you can throw a line in and fish as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that zebra mussels were a problem in uh, Lake Simcoe and places like that. Yes. I'm not, they're not exactly big enough to eat per se, but I suppose if you make a stock out of it, that's something. Yeah, you could you could get a big collection of them going, and, and something is better than nothing, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a little bit of a little tidbit of meat coming out of the shell would be one thing for sure. Um, of course, definitely not legal advice and everything else. I'm not saying to do it, but I mean, uh, we talked about baiting before, but I mean, people use gill nets uh, with success, but they're not exactly legal in a lot of jurisdictions. So that's just no, something definitely to think. not. Yeah, <laughs> something to think about. Uh, yep. Static static fish lines, same thing. You know, we're not allowed to leave a, a fish line like unattended per se, so you, you don't want to do that normally. And there's rule of law and air quotes there. Yeah. Um, uh, but if things if things have gone south and uh, and you're trying to put food on the table, that's a, a different story than when things are running smoothly and 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 are running the way they're supposed to be. Then then you definitely don't want to be breaking any laws. That's for sure. No, but I mean, some people. I mean, there's certain people that have certain status in Canada that are allowed to use gill nets and so on. That you know. You could That's certainly, right. I, I could ask them their advice on it and see what you know they, they say works and what doesn't. Oh, absolutely, no harm in that at all. And you know, again, disclaimer: we're not telling you to break the law right now. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. No, no, all the law. But uh, if, if things have gone south and these are these are skills that you've learned and you need to use them to to get by. If uh, like I said, if things have gone south, well, that's one thing, but. Uh, as long as things are running status quo, then yeah, certainly don't be breaking any laws. We don't want to be uh, we don't want to be promoting that. Yeah, and the one little tip I learned when I was a kid actually is um, if you're going to start trapping, staring, and everything else, um, don't eat a diet steady of just rabbit. Um, if you're going to eat rabbit, you have to actually have something with either fat in it or greens in it to actually digest it properly. Like the meat's just too lean. So yeah, that's a good uh, point. If you're a you know a university student at UVic or something like that, and you're looking at you know the thousands of rabbits on the campus, and you're you're starving to death, that it sounds good, but there was actually stories back in the 1800s of mountain men that we'd actually get a belly full of rabbit meat and still be starving to death. No, that's and good to know. It's actually hard for your body. It'll make you sick after about three days straight of just eating rabbits. So, well, that's good information to know. I know a lot of people uh, talk about just catching a bunch of rabbit and, and away they go. Yeah, for sure. So if you had like. I'm not saying butter or anything else. You see any sort of animal fat mixed with it, that would certainly make it more uh, digestible for your body for sure. Yep. So other than that, uh, as far as uh, preparedness goes for uh, you know hunting on the, uh, the preparedness side of things, I mean, we can uh, certainly reduce our costs, which is, you know, one of the, the three things I like to think about with prepping is cost savings, you know, uh, less reliance on the system and, and peace of mind. And one of the things I was saying that uh, which we can all do is like just uh, keep an eye out for sales on components for reloading to uh, make your bullets cheaper. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to get, like I said, I'd love to get into reloading uh, at some point because it's, uh, it definitely, I was surprised at how much it brings the cost down for the ammunition. 
Well, basically, the larger the ammunition, the bigger the savings. That's the yeah. basic rule of thumb for sure. I mean, uh, and you look at what happened to reloading, reloading components there during the Obama scares uh, when he kept on talking about banning various ammos uh, and guns and stuff, and they just all disappeared off the shelves and didn't yep. show up for a year or two. So if you can get them on sale, stack them deep for sure. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. Then that way you've got it if you need it. And the other thing I came up with uh, for the spitball year was uh, pit up garage sales. I mean, um, certainly in the area here, there's there's always a crab or a lobster pot, or not lobsters east coast, but a shrimp pot uh, <laughs> out here. Yep. Uh, they're, they're usually on sale at garage sales. Um, same thing with reloading gear. You'll, you'll see a lot of retirees around here, and they're either, either cleaning up the habit or, you know, unfortunately, they might be widowed and, and, and uh, you know, everything. I picked up cleaning kits the other day, actually, for rifles. I, I think picked up 10 cleaning kits for two bucks a piece. Oh, no way. Just off of a garage sale or? Yeah, and uh, wow. it's amazing. Uh, you know, cost savings like that makes a huge difference for sure. Oh yeah, that's great. Ten bucks—that's uh, that's unheard of for a cleaning kit. That's great. Yeah, and I mean, when you think about it, most people when it comes to hunting, I mean, they really only have a box or two of ammo at any given time. Um, you know, sitting in the in a box, you know, somewhere safe away from the rifle, but that's pretty much all they have. So I mean, uh, but when you think of when you buy a box of projectiles or primers, you've got a hundred shots worth of you know primers or, or projectiles each box is 100 shots right then and there so you know it uh, that's quite a few refills for sure oh yeah absolutely and then if you uh you have the skill in order to be able to reload then uh, then you're laughing which is uh, again why i want to figure out how to do it because it's a great skill to have and especially if you're uh, in one of those situations where stuff has gone south you can't necessarily go down the, the canadian tire or cabela's or wherever and just pick up a box of ammo because uh, there might not be any ammo to get so being able to, to reload it on your own would be, well, actually pretty important. Well, even if you don't reload, I mean, you just, I'd say for anybody that's listening, I just keep your own hunting brass, even if you have no intention of reloading, because I mean, down the road, these uh, these brass pieces are only good for two or three shots sometimes before they, they have to be tossed. So, I mean, you might have a bartered good right there, uh, cheaper unit costs if you do decide to do it. Uh, there's just no downside to keeping your own brass. Well, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I know just being at the range and, and putting holes in paper and you see guys just sweeping up all the brass and, and throwing it out all the time. And I keep looking at it going, that's a, that's a good resource to have. So why we're, we're tossing it. I always collect mine and just throw it in the pouch. And I got a buddy of mine that uh, that reloads. So I usually pass it off to him and then I get some reloaded rounds from him out of the deal. But uh, if I can figure out how to do it on my own down the road here, then why not hold on to it? Well, even on good times right now with CGN, if you go on there looking for brass, I mean, the cheapest brass out there is three to five cents a piece. I mean, up to a buck a piece plus. So, I mean, yep. you think about what the average bottle or can on the side of the road is worth, and people don't mind picking up cans. I mean, if you're picking up five, six hundred rounds of nine millimeter brass, it, it doesn't take much before you've got free ammo that you can just go buy from Canadian Tire, much to sell that online. Yeah, so exactly. That's certainly a way to offset your cost if that's a concern as well. And I know you've mentioned uh, CGN a couple of times, but we haven't uh, mentioned what CGN actually is. So for uh, for those listeners that aren't 100% sure, it's the uh, Canadian Gun Nuts website. So it's a good forum to, to get on and you can uh, do some research on firearms, get all kinds of information from people about different types of firearms, ammunition. Uh, you talk about really anything you want when that when it comes to uh, to firearms. So it's a, it's a good resource to hop onto and, and uh, there's some good debates to, to get into as well on there. Sometimes they get a little heated. But uh, nothing wrong with that because uh, everyone's uh, open to their own opinion. And it's uh, it's a good form to get on. So, again, it's uh, Canadian Gun Nuts. Just throw that into Google and, and check it out and hop on the forums because it's uh, it'll be a great, great resource for anybody that's interested in firearms. Well, my favorite section of that one, too, is the equipment exchange, which basically allows you uh, – it goes down by section of hunting rifles, ammunition, knives, everything else. If cost savings is a concern as well, I mean, you get on there, 
get a few posts under your belt, um, you can apply for access to it. And uh, it's just like eBay, it's got a trader rating system. So there's no ripping off or scams going on. And if there is, if, trust me, you'll hear about it. And, um, you know, it's certainly a way to pick up stuff that, uh, you know, somebody else can eat the tax and shipping and you can save on that <laughs> for sure. Well, exactly. And, and it's a it's a great resource, whether uh, you're, you're very experienced with firearms or you're, you're just new into it and you're getting into uh, maybe purchasing your first gun or, or just getting into uh, in the firearms in general, then uh, check it out. And, and it's, a, it's a great resource for, for anybody, uh, whether you're, like I said, whether you're, you're new or advanced in the, uh, the firearms world. So I guess with all this talk about hot take, we should talk about our podcast challenge at this point. Yeah, I think so. We're going to do uh, a podcast challenge for this episode in relation to hunting. So uh, the podcast challenge is going to be, have you ever harvested an animal and how did you learn to do it? So I guess if you haven't, I guess your challenge for this episode is to watch a video on how to do it, even if it's just a chicken, which is probably, good, again, gateway drug for most people uh, harvesting an animal because it's something you're familiar with. Uh, YouTube is definitely an amazing resource for that. Um, actually, believe it or not, uh, Matthew from Slamfire, uh, Slamfire Radio, that's another podcast that's available locally. His uh, YouTube channel is MMAT, so double M-A-T-T. And he does a great, actually, video on how to uh, harvest a grouse and how to harvest a deer, like as far as uh, partying them out, uh, field dressing them. And uh, yeah, and basically, if you're willing to process a rooster in the local area here, that's another skill set that will save you some money. And you could pretty much eat for free at this uh, where I live because there's always people looking to get rid of roosters that don't want to do the deed themselves. Oh, perfect. And it's it's something that's that's good to know how to do. It's like I said uh Right now, times are good. You can go down to the grocery store and, and grab uh, whatever you want, really. But uh, if it gets to the point where you need to go and find your own food or you're just looking to offset costs, um, it's a great skill to have. And, and there's uh, build some confidence in knowing that you're able to do it. So that's our, our podcast challenge for uh, for this episode. So uh, you can email uh, feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. Uh, let us know um, if you have harvested animal, how you how you learned how to do it. And if you haven't, uh, fire in an email and, and let us know how you've learned to do it and uh, if you're successful or not. So again, that's uh, feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. And then we're going to get into uh, some re- some listener reviews. So we've got uh, an email from Brad who, uh, who sent an email into us. All right. So his uh, email reads, Hi, Eric. I just came across your podcast and listened to the first three episodes. Ian is a good co-host. Thank I you agree much. with him. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy your styles as it, as it is intelligent and realistic. So much of what I've heard or read is Armageddon-style jargon where I should be stockpiling thousands of rounds of ammo and work out to become Rambo. Now, I and, don't see the problem with stockpiling thousands of rounds of ammo. Well, and <laughs> not to go on too much of a tangent, but it, it always makes me laugh in the news when we talk about you know th- uh, a cat or like a was a, a hoard of ammunition is a thousand rounds of 22. And I'm thinking I've gone through that in a day with yeah. my two kids. Well, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong of having thousands of, ram, of rounds of ammo, as long as you're putting those rounds of ammo downrange. Yeah. And same thing. I mean, <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with working out and getting into shape because I think physical preparedness is key for pretty much any, anything that you might be uh, worried about for sure. Like getting yourself in good shape is no, you know, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna absolutely require less medication. When things go, don't go tough, you're going to probably require less food. One less thing to worry about and everything else. I mean, there's, there's no downside to working out, of course. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but back to that. Um, I've shot guns a few times and had the intentions to get my pal, but after taking the gun safety course, I didn't go through with it. My wife is kind of quite uncomfortable with them, and I can't say I'm not also. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that either. If you're not comfortable no. with it, don't do it. I mean, why put something in the house that's only going to cause strife and or a safety concern? 
Oh, exactly. Um, I was uh, I was pretty adamant uh, on my wife doing the, the the safety course as well because there are firearms in the house. So uh, I said, you know what, if, if we're going to have rifles here, you need to know how to handle them too. Not that she's going to go and, and get them all the time and use them, but they're in the house. So it's important that she understands how, uh, how they work and how they operate. Um, and she comes out to the range every once in a while as well and puts some holes in paper with them. So it's, uh, if you're not comfortable with them, then, you know, good on you for, for recognizing that and not going further with it. Cause if, if you're simply not comfortable, they're, you know, they, they, they can kill you. So you, you need to know how to use them properly and, and good on you for, for recognizing the fact that uh, you're not comfortable with them and just not, not getting one. Well, there's also legal ramifications too. Cause I mean, if you have a firearm in the house and somebody else has unauthorized access to it, that's a, that's a plethora of charges coming your way right then and there. And why? Oh, absolutely. Oh, exactly. Yep. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, Carrying on, uh, I live in southern Ontario, uh, 45 minutes northeast of Toronto. We moved up here 10 years ago from midtown Toronto after a lifetime of living in the city. My wife is a horse rider, so we bought a 10-acre hobby farm. It's six acres of trees and the rest are barn and paddocks. I am 50 years old and have three boys. Increasingly, I've become more interested in a self-sufficient lifestyle. We're burning your insert, which we heat house, secondary heat source to propane. We have a well and septic. I'm learning more and more techniques and skills to do my things on my own. For future podcasts, I'd be interested in learning about your views on the necessity of firearms for self-defense in a preparedness situation. Uh, certainly, we can cover that one episode down the road. Oh, absolutely. That's a whole <laughs> other kettle of fish. Yep. <laughs> another, thing you, another thing you want to see is, uh, would a Canadian survival situation be different than an American one in the sense of people helping each other versus shooting first? Oh, we could talk about that for hours as well. Oh, absolutely. We can. I, I like that. That's, that's going to be a good topic. We'll, yeah, uh, yeah we, we've got two, two podcasts out of this feedback so far. And uh, how to get my wife and kids involved so they're more self-sufficient. And then again, that's, uh, that's another whole episode to itself as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have lots of fires in the pit outside and have a generator, et cetera, and I teach them how to start the fires, what to do in case of high outage, emergency, et cetera. Um, you know, and then just Cole's notes on that one to get your wife and kids involved. I think uh, anytime you see a news story, whether it be uh, something we can get into here down with the email, like uh, a nuclear station accident like Fukushima, or just a shooting, or even just an emergency situation like a fire flood or whatever, there's no sense, or there's no harm in starting a conversation with your wife and kids about, you know, what do you think of that? What do you, what, what do you think we should do if that happened? Oh, exactly. Just to see them going, because I mean, there's again, there's there's three good justifications behind preparedness and you know, cost savings, which is you know, such as bulk buying. That's a good way to save money. That's uh, going to appeal to anybody. Oh, absolutely. Uh, less reliance on the system. Again, that's going to appeal to everybody. And I think peace of mind and a time savings. If something's time critical, such as a fire or flood, and you want to leave, if you have everything prepared ahead of time, it's just one more peace of mind. So. Yeah. Uh, well, that is a full episode of it for sure. I think, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly the, the talking points that we'd be starting from for sure. And I like the fact that he's already opened up the dialogue and he's talked to his wife and kids about what to do in case of a power outage or an emergency. Because that's the key thing is, is having a plan ahead of time. If you, you don't have a plan ahead of time, you're going to panic. And if you panic, you're going to get nothing done. So opening up that, that key dialogue ahead of time is, is great because everybody's going to know what to do if this happens and what to do if that happens. So it's definitely, uh, we appreciate that brag because now we have three, uh, three more topics to, to cover off for, for three more episodes. So we're going to be around for at least three more episodes for everybody listening. And, <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's great. That's great information. Uh, he carries on. So for the uh, challenge that Ian suggested, I will submit direct to nuclear station. It's just, uh, my challenge was in the previous episode is to list, uh, what you consider to be the most immediate or likely threats in your local area. And that was on episode three. So uh, he did point out his uh, local nuclear station, which I think he's actually got a couple nearby. So um, he's got, uh, he says, it's just down at Pickering. So your views on how prepared we need to be in, up here in our town is uh, uh, 64 kilometers away, he said. 
what should we be doing? Have in case of nuclear meltdown, still, etc. Yeah, Eric, that's a, that? yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good question, and I I did a little bit of digging uh, once he mentioned the the nuclear power plants and his uh, he gave us a little bit more specific information about where he's located, but uh, for privacy reasons we're keeping that uh, out of the podcast. But um, so I did a little bit of digging, and he's uh, he's within the ring of uh, area between actually Pickering and the Darlington uh, nuclear plants, so. Uh, any kind of a, a meltdown or, or or disaster happening at either power plant, so either the, the Pickering or the Darlington plant, is going to affect him. Um, so one of the things that was suggested is um, to visit the preparetobesafe.ca website. So again, that's preparetobesafe.ca. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So that's a website that's been put together that will allow anybody within uh, the 50 kilometer radius or closer to either the Darlington or the Pickering uh, power plants to have KI pills uh, shipped out to them at no cost. So at least it's something. Um, those help block um, the nuclear radiation in your thyroid, which helps prevent uh, cancer in your thyroid after an exposure to, to uh, nuclear radiation. So it's something at least. Um, that website as well, uh, prepare to be safe.ca, runs you through some tips and, and some things to do in the event of a meltdown. Um, what to expect, what can happen, what you should do. Um, so it's a great resource to check out. Uh, and instead of going into uh, great detail as to what that website says, I would just suggest to Brad and anybody else listening to to check that website out and uh, and build that into your plan so that you're aware of what happens if you're within that uh, 50 kilometer radius of either of those power plants. Definitely have uh, have the discussion with your family and and figure out what exactly it is you're going to do if something happens. Um, obviously, the further away you are, you'll have a little bit more time to, to get things together versus the closer you are. Uh, but but get that plan together. Hop on the website, order the KI pills. They don't cost you anything. So why not have them? Well, but you might as well get some of your government tax money back as well. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, you're paying your taxes. You may as well uh, use a little bit of it, right? And, and if you live within that 50-kilometer uh, radius, they'll send the KI pills out to you for nothing. Uh, a little shameless plug here as well. Rapid Survival does carry the, the KI pills as well. So if you're not within that 50-kilometer uh, radius and you still want to get a package of the pills, you can certainly order them off uh, off the Rapid Survival website, and I'll, uh, I'll happily ship them out to you. <laughs> As, 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 you, as you should, as a good capitalist. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to mention too is that, uh, you know, like uh, might require a little bit of digging on the Environment Canada's website. But I mean, if you figure out where your uh, your prevailing winds are coming from, if you're downwind of the station, it's obviously more of a concern than if, you know, say 80, 90% of the time the winds are blowing away from you. That's certainly a, a slight relief, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't worry about it. No, absolutely. Um, At least it's going to give you a little bit of extra time. But uh, yeah, knowing what way the wind's going is, is certainly important. Well, I think the uh, just to mention to the KI pills, that's uh, that's basically a type of iodine that is more readily and easily absorbed in your thyroid than the radioactive iodine that would come out of a nuclear power plant in case of a meltdown. And yeah. so it uh, it's more of a um, I would say a, a prophylactic <laughs> kind of uh, pill. And the fact that if if you're in the area during the meltdown, it basically prevents your thyroid from absorbing it, which leads to problems down the road, but it certainly doesn't protect you from actual radiation sickness or anything. No, no, you don't take the pill and just walk down the street and, and you know, everything's fine. No, it's yeah. just a, uh, it, it's kind of a little preventative thing to, to make sure that things aren't as bad as they possibly could be down the road, but you, you still definitely want to take some precautions and get the heck out of the area as soon as you can. Well, yeah, because if you take those pills, you won't die of uh, thyroid cancer when you're 75, but you might die of radiation sickness two days from now. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> your thyroid would be in good condition, though. <laughs> be fantastic. So yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a, a valid concern as well. Because I mean, uh, ironically enough, as we discovered during the uh, 2003 power outage in Ontario, 
turns out nuclear power plants can't power themselves. Interesting. Yeah, they actually have to have backup generators because it turns out for some reason, I don't know what the engineering is behind it, they actually have to have backup generators to power a nuclear power plant as well as having grid power going into it or else it doesn't work properly. So, uh, which I find amusingly ironic. I, I yeah, that's, that's quite ironic. A power plant can't power itself. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, it, it's... It's kind of important for the whole nuclear reaction cooling thing, isn't it? And that was the problem <laughs> with Fukushima as well. That's when they had their meltdown because their grid power died and I guess their, their backup generators didn't work properly and or ran out of gas and it didn't take long for things to, you know, hilarity to ensue, so to speak. I think part of the problem is some of their backup generators were washed away in the tsunami and then the other ones uh, that brought in ran out of gas or had supply issues or something. Uh, yeah, it turned, turned bad fast. No, uh, a nuclear meltdown is never a good thing. No, for sure. And so, I mean, uh, again, it ties into a power outage and, uh, you know, same thing with the peace of mind idea. If you're going to be, uh, if you want to save some time and have the, the first mover advantage in something like a, a power station, uh, like Darlington going down, you don't want to be the, the 500th person on the road. Or you want to be the first person on the road heading north or whatever the safe direction is. Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. You don't want to be uh, just sitting there waiting to, to hear if, uh, if one of those plants is going down. You, you want to have your plan uh in place well ahead of time, know what you're going to be doing, know how you're going to get there and know how you're going to get out of the, uh, the danger zone. And, uh, you're going to want to be well, well away from it. That's for sure. Well, I think just that's where we're having friends, uh, outside of the province or, you know, uh, even a bug out location could be something as simple as a hotel, a campground, a friend's house, whatever, but just have a plan of, like you said, uh, of where to go. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Everybody hears a bug out location. And the first thing they think of is some, some random cabin out in the middle of nowhere that nobody knows about. Well, no, it could be, like you said, your, your friend's house, a couple of towns over or, or a hotel somewhere that's outside of the radius for the, if, if the, a meltdown wants to happen, it doesn't have to be that, that random cabin out in the middle of nowhere that nobody knows about. It can be, it can be just a location that, that is just a little bit away from your current location. No, absolutely. So I think we covered that one off, but we do uh, do appreciate the email for sure, and uh, keep them coming for sure. We we love the questions. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody has any feedback for the show uh, after listening to this one, uh, you can email feedback at prepperpodcast.ca, and uh, we'll ho- help uh, happily uh, talk about um, your your feedback and and what it is that you want to talk about. And we appreciate Brad sending in that email because it's. Uh, it's been quite informative and it's going to give us some topics to talk about in the future. So we look forward to putting those podcasts together as well and, and getting some uh, answers out there for people that are looking that, uh, that have questions. Well, congratulations, Brad, for being our first uh, email, uh, I guess, uh, feedback, which is yeah. uh, nice, nice to see. Uh, on that, do we have any iTunes reviews at all, Eric? Uh, yes, we've got one iTunes review. Uh, we still don't have enough on iTunes to be officially ranked, but uh, we do have one review from uh, Madamus A320. Uh, he gave us five stars, so we appreciate that. We're uh, hoping for a few more of those, and then we'll get an official rank on uh, on iTunes. But uh, he says, informative and great uh, non-doomsday prepper perspective. Keep it up. And that's uh, kind of what we're trying to do here on this podcast is uh, have a realistic view on uh, on being prepared and not just the uh, the media hype of doomsday, the world's ending, put your gas mask on and walk around all the time sort of thing. So we're uh, glad to see that uh, people are listening and they're starting to recognize that um, – we're not uh, not doing the doomsday thing, and we're we're trying to be as realistic as possible and get some good valid information out there. Well, Nancy, I'm just shortly tempted when we actually go on YouTube and uh, start doing these live. I think I might want to wear gas masks for the first one. Oh, I'm putting my tinfoil hat on for the first one. <laughs> Absolutely, that that has to happen just because that's what people assume when they uh, 
when they do the uh, when they, they look at the prepper thing, they, they're thinking that we're wearing the gas mask. You know what? I'm going to wear a gas mask and a tinfoil hat. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing both. You know, go big or go home. Is there such a thing as too much preparedness? I don't know. Absolutely not. And it starts with tinfoil hats and gas masks. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should move on to shout outs. Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess I, for myself, I've, uh, I've once again, the two weeks in a row, but I have to give a shout out to Canadian Patriot Podcast um, for giving, allowing me to do a shameless plug of the show. I um, was actually talking with Eric before we started recording here. It was actually really nice of them. They, um, they allowed me to come on, uh, guest hosted, which is kind of one of my favorite podcasts to begin with, other than this one, clearly. And, <laughs> and basically allowed me to, uh, at the end of the episode, they probably gave me about what, five, 10 minutes to, uh, to talk about it. Yeah, it was that was awesome. I listened to the episode uh, actually before we started recording this one, and uh, yeah, they uh, they certainly seemed interested in this podcast. This was awesome. A uh, little rivalry as well with the the initials of CPP being the same, uh, so that was good. Uh, nothing wrong with a little bit of rivalry here and there. Uh, yeah, I like to see it. Well, well, hopefully we'll convince one of them to come over here on a guest uh, guest appearance sooner or later. But uh, oh, absolutely, they're welcome anytime they want to come over and uh, and appear on the show. Absolutely, the the door is open for them anytime. It's uh, they're a great group of guys. I, I rather enjoy their podcast. I get uh, a lot of laughs out of listening to them. So anytime they want to come over and, and uh, talk on here for sure, for sure. That's on episode one fifty seven on YouTube, uh, the Canadian Patriot Podcast uh, channel. Um, also, want to send a little shout out to Bullseye Sports in London, Ontario. Um, not my first purchase from them, nor my last, but uh, they're always a fast shipping company. They usually have things in the mail same day and great communications on email. And my little Ruger, uh, Ruger plinker there that showed up, it's a fantastic little uh, rifle. And uh, I really appreciate it. They're always competitive on price, so I just want to give them a little shout out as well. Awesome. And uh, my last one, uh, it's kind of a coded message, but the Airbnb Minutemen, they know who they are. Uh, a couple of friends of mine over in the Calgary <laughs> area. Um, they've actually been going back and forth with me for uh, the last couple of weeks with uh, car kit ideas, get home bags, some inspiration on that. And uh, sadly enough, and I fully admit it, it reminds me of how sorely lacking my own setup is for some of that stuff. So uh, that's added to my to-do list as well. So, I mean, uh, good for them for being super keen and, and, and questioning me on what my preps are compared to theirs, because uh, obviously there's, we've all got work to do. Oh, perfect. And you know, that's how, uh, that's how you improve your preps is just talking to people and, and figuring out what you have versus what they have and, and figuring out what's working for them and what could actually work for you. So uh, opening up the communication between uh, people with the same kind of mindset is great because you, you realize what, what you have and what they have and then how you can increase your things and how they can increase their preps as well. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. Anything else? No, I think with that, I'm going to bring uh, episode four of the uh, Canadian Prepper podcast to an end. Uh, Ian, where can people find uh, the show online? Well, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Podbean. And uh, please help us out. Take a few minutes to submit a review on uh, either. I guess iTunes is probably more effective as well. You can yeah, also find review anywhere. It'd be great. Yeah, uh, you can also find us at prepperpodcast.ca. And uh, Eric, how can people contact us to give us feedback again? So if you want to give us feedback, you can email feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. You can send us in uh, ideas for the show, uh, what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. Uh, if you've got a, a view that you don't agree with us on something we've talked about on the show, send it in. We we welcome uh, feedback of all types. So uh, if we can get the conversation going, if it's something that you don't agree with and you want to talk about it, absolutely. We don't want to be the podcast that just uh, throws things out there and says we're right and doesn't matter. Uh, we want to hear your view as well. And if you want to be on the show, you can email uh, feedback at Prepper Podcast as well and uh, we'll get you on and you can uh, talk with us. No, uh, Ian, how can, how can people reach you, Ian? Well, they can reach me at the islandrepeat at gmail.com and uh, don't do any other social media at all. And um, interesting enough, you're, you raise a good point there too. If we have criticisms or uh, trolling, whatever, have you hate mail, that's okay because I mean, 
uh, I think everything we're, we're talking about here is subject to change uh, with new information comes along as well. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Send the hate mail, send the love mail, whatever kind of mail you want to send us. We, uh, we will certainly read it and uh, put it on the, put it on the show. So Eric, how can people get a hold of you as well? Uh, so they can check out uh, Rapid Survival at rapidsurvival.com. Uh, you can get me there while uh, buying some prepper gear. Uh, you can also email uh, feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. And, uh, thanks for joining us and tune in for the next episode. Where we're going to plan to cover off uh, post-deer hunting. We're going to talk about uh, what worked, what didn't work. And uh, please review us on iTunes and uh, keep that feedback coming. Uh, until next time, be prepared, stay safe, and keep learning. 